Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I'm your host, Tatiana Kosesnov. This week, I'm delighted to have with me Dr. Karina Patel. She's dedicated her career to helping patients suffering with chronic sleep breathing disorders and pain. Dr. Patel qualified as a dentist from King's College London and undertook further training in the US with TMJ and Sleep Therapy Center International Group. She incorporated her TMJ and Sleep Therapy Center of London into the London Sleep Center in 2014. Karina is the only American Academy trained and accredited dental sleep medicine and craniofacial pain specialist in the UK. Welcome, Karina. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and talk to me. Um, Apparently, you're talking to me from Dubai. How exotic is that? (laughs) I am talking to you from Dubai. Um, Yeah, the clinic that we run here is a couple of days a month. So um, we come out, work, see patients for a few days and fly back. (laughs) It's It's a tough life, but uh, but exciting, I imagine. (laughs) So in the introduction, there were a couple of, um, of terms and, and uh, acronyms that I, I dropped there that I think we have to kind of unpack. So um, I'll be straight up and say that when I was in investigating, doing my research on sleep, because I think we all know how massively important sleep is to good health, mm-hmm. I came across um, you and this term dental sleep medicine. Well, you know, I consider myself pretty well informed and well read. And I have to admit, I didn't even know that was a thing. So maybe you can actually explain to me and also to the listeners exactly what one can understand under dental sleep medicine. And then maybe we can move on to thinking about TMJ and what that means as part of all of that picture. Yeah, that sounds like a good starting point. Um, So there's always been a gap in the treatment um, for sleep sleep breathing disorders. Um, There is a whole host of different things that have been available for for a long time. So one of them being um, cognitive behavioral therapy for patients with insomnia. They have um, CPAP machines where you're actually ventilated, where you stop breathing. Um, but uh, dental sleep medicine, although it's fairly new in the UK, it has been around for a long time. Um, so dentists are generally considered as, and it sounds a bit cheesy, but gatekeepers for the airway because we're constantly looking through the mouth um, and we're sort of doing head and neck um, investigations throughout just doing a general checkup. So it didn't make sense that we weren't involved in the sleep side of things. So what the actual dental sleep medicine treatment involves is wearing uh, dental sleep devices, so appliances that are generally worn in your mouth to try and hold your jaw forward, keep the airway open, and stop it from collapsing. So we're able to treat patients that have mild to moderate obstructive sleep apnea, Um, as well as patients with upper airway resistance, uh, snoring, all sorts of different things like that. Just to um, clarify, can you explain a little bit for those who don't know exactly what apnea means? Mm -hmm. So sleep apnea is basically where you have a pause in breathing. Um, That has to be recorded uh, using a sleep test kit for up to 10 seconds at a time. Now, it's normal for that to happen up to five times an hour a night, 
but anything above five times, so from five to 15 times, that's mild uh, apnea, and then 15 to 30 is moderate, and anything from 30 and above is severe. So the severe patients, their first line of treatment would still be a CPAP machine, whereas the other uh, mild to moderate category is now considered first line for uh, dental sleep medicine devices. Okay, so that's actually where, where a, um, a person actually just basically doesn't breathe properly when they're sleeping, so they're getting like oxygen deprivation, right? Uh, pretty much, yeah, that would be the category. So I guess a good sign of that is, is the people who, who come out, you know, after eight hours of what they think is good sleep and are still falling asleep at their, at their office desk every day, and not just because it's boring, of course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you hope not, yeah. <laughs> Generally, they would be suffering from some form of fatigue, from not having enough oxygen, not breathing properly at night, um, continuous arousals in their sleep. Um, there are hundreds of different types of sleep disorders. Um, it's just making sure that we can treat different patients with different types of sleep disorders and diagnosing them properly before we do that. So, yeah. Okay. So from the dental perspective, if I understand you correctly, then um, in the case of these sorts of disorders, you're actually going in because you're part of the curative um, you know, with, with actually making these devices that go in the mouth. Um, is... Are there dental causes of that sort of problem? Um, there are things that are related. Um, there is yet to be established a, a direct link between these things, but I'll give you an example. So if somebody had, um, had a really retruded uh, lower jaw position, then it, it's going to impact the size of the air, that's, well, the size of the airway at the back of the throat. Mm -hmm. So that, in turn, is going to affect the amount of air that goes and feeds through to their lungs and the amount of oxygen circulating through their system. If they have an actual collapse and the soft tissue in the back of their throat is really sort of not non-elastic and they have a high uh, chance of collapsibility, that retruded jaw position would make the chances of that even higher. Um, and they'd be more likely to have issues like apnea or upper airway resistance. Right. But the jaw is an issue, right? So could you maybe explain exactly what, what one can understand under TMJ? Okay, so the TMJ, uh, it stands for temporomandibular joint. So that's the actual joint that basically sits in underneath the base of your skull. Um, it's the joint that functions and is on its in. Uh, load, what we call, so when you're chewing and eating and all that, that sort of stuff, that is the joint that takes all the, all the brunt of the load there. Um, if that joint is overworked or if you have an impact injury or if it's just sort of been chronically used in a wrong way, then it can move out of position. So that's generally what causes a jaw joint dysfunction, and that's termed uh, TMD. So a lot of people will ask, actually, what's the difference between TMJ and TMD? The TMJ would be the joint, and TMD would be the dysfunction. If you Google search either of the two, you'd probably find the same, the same things come up. Um, but when there is a dysfunction in the joint, or the joint has sort of slipped position slightly, it's the same as having a dislocated joint anywhere else. So you would, 
sometimes experience pain. Sometimes people won't experience anything, but they won't be able to function properly. Um, so it'd be a case of trying to find out exactly what has happened to that joint. And if they aren't in severe pain at the time that they come in, what other areas of the body might be compensating for the fact that they've got a dislocated joint. So what, what, what sort of conditions then do you actually see? I mean, what, what, what do patients present with that make you think, oh, this, this could be the problem? So the highest up in the category would uh, be headaches, uh, neck aches, back pain, and then come the actual jaw, facial pain. Um, a lot of them have sleep problems as well, which is why we combined with the London Sleep Centre um, to be able to diagnose those patients as well. Because a lot of the time, if they have a limitation in their airway, they tend to brace on their jaw joint or brace on the joint to try and keep the, the airway open. Um, that ends up causing damage to the joint. Um, the other ones, they might have been in um, a car accident or something like that years ago, but now all of a sudden they're feeling pain. And it could be that the injuries might have started way back then, and it's just presenting with um, symptoms now. So there's all sorts of different cases, actually. So that would sort of infer that, that oftentimes a lot of the people that you see are probably at the end of a very long road of trying to figure out what on earth is wrong with them and they sort of finally yeah. end up with, with you. Because, I mean, it, it's not the first thing that you would think of, is it? Let's be honest. Um, often I get them come in with a huge file, and I mean huge, <laughs> of all the different people that they've seen before. Uh, in that category would be... There's, ENT, neurologists, they've had MRI scans done of all over, um, and they still haven't got an answer of sort of why they're in pain, what it might be, if it's not a nerve, then what else could it be? Uh, TMJ or TMD disorder, it, it tends to slot in where the missing gaps are. So it's one of it is one of those things but it's again it's not it's not hugely known about and there's not many practitioners in the uk which is the problem so that's why i think they end up going to a whole load of other places before they finally figure it out right because i guess sort of um the gps are not and also not so well versed in the in the methodology to make to make referrals no um, there isn't that much training out there at the minute um I am trying to put together a training program, um, but at the minute, with as far as I know, I'm the only person that does the sleep and the jaw together. Mm -hmm. So it ends up being quite a lot <laughs> <laughs> to be able to do that and lecture at the same time. Um, I did have a couple of um, a couple of people ask me, and I did one last year in Australia. I did one in England, during one in Devon <laughs> at the end of this year. Um, but yeah, aside from doing that every week, it yeah, it does need to be talked about a hell of a lot more than what it is. Right. Yeah. You talked about um, migraines. That's um, you know, as I told you before, I was um, I, I work sometimes as a as a hypnotherapist, and I have a lot of colleagues, and oftentimes we we deal with patients or clients that that come in with migraine headaches and headaches. And now I know that there's a million and one causes for for headaches, but are there is there a specific sort of symptomology of of a headache, particular kind of characteristics of the kind of headaches that might be more associated? 
with jaw pains that, or jaw disorders? Yeah, so um, generally the distribution of the pain, so if they're more sort of temporal headaches, if you get ones that come on um, and get worse throughout the day, then that indicates that you're loading a structure, you're putting muscles into spasm, um, and that would indicate that you've you've probably got something going on with, with a joint rather than something that's happening at a different time. If people wake up with headaches, then that might also be an indication that, that they've got an underlying sleep disorder associated with jaw joint dysfunction. Um, the specifics are sort of temporal headaches. They end up with, um, with pain going round to the back of the head as well because of specific referral patterns. They also get their sternocleidomastoid, so the muscles that are holding the neck, they end up in spasm as well. Um, and generally, patients that have a jaw joint displacement end up uh, posturing their head a little bit more forward than usual. And every inch your head comes forward from your spine adds 30 pounds of weight to your back. So that all of that combined can give you a really, really bad um, headache or pain, migraine, all of it really. If you do suffer from migraines um, anyway, and then you you combine that with a TMJ disorder, they can be really debilitating. So, okay, yeah. And so, if you if a, a patient comes to you and they present with one of these disorders, what's the what's the treatment? How do you how do you fix them? So the we run a series of tests. It usually takes about an hour. Um, the, the main test that we do is something called motor nerve reflex testing, which is a, it's a test that orthopedic surgeons use to try and find out what the primary area of injury is in the nervous system. Um, once we detect a primary, there's often a lot of secondary issues, which have been adaptations to, say, not holding your head centered on your spine. Your shoulders could change position, your hips are out, and then your feet are slightly splayed, things like that. Um, so once we find the primary issue there, then we can say, okay, it's definitely something that we're going to be able to help with. Um, so that would be mostly things in the, the jaw, neck area. If there is, um, say, a, a foot injury or, a, a, for example, a peroneal nerve pinch on the right foot, <laughs> really, really random example, but um, I have now found um, other people to work with that are able to address different parts of the body. Um, it's great that we're able to detect it, but then we don't want to say, okay, we can't actually do anything with, with that part. So now you have to go and find somewhere else and then back into that same circle of research and Google again. <laughs> so we've actually got um, quite a lot of people now. So we've got a neurochiro factor that works with us. We've got a myofunctional therapist. Um, who retrains tongue muscles and all of, all of that kind of stuff. There's um, a podiatrist as well, an osteopath, and we use different uh, professionals for different reasons. Um, the rest of the uh, workup of what we call it when we're actually diagnosing would be a CT scan. If it's indicated at the C in, during the CT scan that they have a narrow airway, we might send them then off for a sleep study if it wasn't indicated to start with. Um, it slightly changes the design of the appliances that we make. Uh, if they have a positive diagnosis for, of 
say, having sleep apnea, then we have to make them a specific sleep apnea device. We can't just prescribe them something that's going to take care of their jaw, but not hold their airway open, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Is there an age limit on this? Because, I mean, presumably at some point in time, things kind of, you know, uh, set themselves quite solidly in place. So, you know, the jaw is not, or the teeth are not as movable as they once were. The jaw is maybe not as movable. I mean, clearly it's something which is much more advantageous to catch early anyway, because you avoid all the knock-on down, downstream effects. But is there is there a cut-off point where you would say after a certain age, this is kind of difficult to fix, or is it always something that you can fix? Um, it might not be something that you can fix as an as an adult. You can't make bone grow back from where it's been worn away. So, say if someone's had a chronic jaw joint displacement for a long time, it might be that they're functioning where the disc that's supposed to separate that area has been completely displaced, and their bone is sort of rubbing on bone. Um, we do have patients like that, and we even had a patient once who. Um, was told that she had to have uh, jaw implants, so she had to surgically have new jaw joints placed uh, because her osteoarthritis was just so bad. Um, she, this was seven years ago, I want to say. So at that point, she was told surgery was something that they should do right away. Um, she still hasn't had the surgery yet. They were able to prolong things like that from happening. Um, she must be now, I think, she must be about 70-odd now. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, re it's remarkable what you can do when you actually put the body in a state where it can actually heal itself. It's oh, just... Um, music to my ears, those words. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah, if, if you're able to provide an environment where you've got the joint, it's allowed to slowly move back into position... Um, on its own, then there's not much extra that you need to do. And there might be other adaptations. Their ligaments might be stretched, um, which might need additional work because ligaments don't shrink back so easy. But it, there's nothing saying that that can't happen. It is a lot easier in children, like you said. It's a lot easier to catch, diagnose early, stop these problems from happening um, at a later stage, possibly prevent them needing braces when they're older and all that kind of stuff. But for adults, it doesn't mean that there's no option. <laughs> right, right. So generally, I mean, in your opinion, you know, as I said, it was it was kind of like a new a new way of thinking about it to me that, that sleep and and some of these disorders. I mean, you know, when you talk about having a, a problem in a jaw, that that makes sense. But of course, that's all exacerbated in sleep. If you, you know, and it's one of those things where I just think sort of it's a bit chicken and egg. So presumably our modern lifestyles, which are very high stress, where everybody goes to sleep and they don't actually really relax, even though they sleep for maybe five or six hours and they sleep much too little. Um, um, where, where does it start? Does the stress cause the problem? Does the problem cause stress? Is it? Do you understand what I'm getting at here? Is yeah. um, What's your comment on that? So... A lot of the time, the main idea of, of doing all those tests and finding out and investigating and getting a proper diagnosis is to find out what came first. <laughs> so 
So if, um, if someone suffers from a sleep disorder, oxygen will take its priority over anything else that's going on with the body. Because without oxygen, essentially, we're not here anymore. So if that is something that is happening and their patient has a lack of oxygen, you could almost 100% say that anything that's happening with them is probably down to the fact that they're not healing ever while they're asleep when they're supposed to be. Um, so there's no chance that whatever might have happened in the past is going to spontaneously recover and they're just they're going to get better. Um, if they have a history, so if you sort of go back and sort of delve into their past, if they can think of any point where things might have changed uh, in their mouth or anything like that, where so things suddenly changed, either in an accident or um, they had a bout of, say, old traditional orthodontic work, something like that, um, or they held their mouth open for really long for something, uh, things like that, although they might seem really little to, to the patients, um, they might actually have been something that could have caused a displacement in the first place, but then it's never been addressed, so the displacement's just got worse and worse. So in that way, it is actually quite easy to find out if they haven't got it due to a breathing disorder, then it's something functional. And if you delve back enough, you'll probably find something that is most likely to have been the cause. Can there be sort of emotional issues for things like this to start? I mean, I, I know from personal experience that I don't grind my teeth, but I clench them. Um, and I know that um, when, I'm, when I'm upset about something or stressed and I haven't stress managed well enough, um, bad me, you know, I should be setting a good example. Um, but then I, I, you know, I literally, I clench my jaw and um, I actually do have a, a little, you know, a little device, a little jaw, um, tooth guard to, to stop me doing that. So I, these days I'm so aware of it that I know at least I'm stressed and I actually put the thing in before going to bed and it really helps that I don't get neck and, and, and headaches the next day. But I have the feeling that just being kind of um, emotionally upset or very stressed can actually be a trigger um, for, yeah, for setting all these things off? Um, I was going to say at least I'd say 85% of the patients before they come to me are all, already on some type of antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication um, or uh, a sleeping aid of some sort. Um, and the reason for that is because when, when you have a structural injury, especially when it's that high up, there's no relay neuron into the brain. So if you injure another part of your body, it crosses over, it goes to a different neuron, then it travels up and goes to your brain. With anything that happens in the jaw joint, there's no relay. So there's no numbing down over going through a different nerve pathway. It just goes straight there. So it does feel 10 times more um, worse, basically. It feels worse than, than where it is anywhere else. Um, the issue with, with structural stress already being there and then adding another stress to it, your brain doesn't differentiate between them too well. So it just adds on top of that pile. And say if you imagine you've got a bucket of water and it's almost about to overspill, you add a bit of anxiety in there and it's gone. <laughs> and then you start getting all those symptoms. So that is, yeah, a lot of our patients are presenting in that way. Great. What would you say, for example, I mean, as I said, this was all new to me. I mean, clearly this is not a topic which is which is very well understood or even recognised. Um, 
you know, um, can you can you just comment a bit about that? I mean, I know you said earlier on that you were planning to, for the um, for doctors to, to organize training programs, but um, you know, why is why isn't this on the front page of the, of the news? Because I mean, it's something which is, if I understand you correctly, so there might be quite a lot of diagnostics, but in terms of actually therapying um, uh, patients, you get a, a lot of you know, bang for your buck. I mean, it's 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 a not particularly invasive. It's not you know a drug therapy necessarily, and yet you can make massive changes. So why don't we know more about this? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> I came back from so I uh, studied in England, obviously, and then I um, I moved to Australia, and I had never heard of it before I moved at all. I didn't even know it existed. And I went down the path of neuromuscular dentistry, which is where you're trying to balance muscles on each side for migraines and headaches and things. Um, but the more I delve into it, the more I found that there was an airway connection um, and that there were practitioners all over, just not in England and very few in Europe, really, um, doing this. And it seems to be more in the US, in Canada, Australia, there's a lot of people doing this. Um, but it hasn't quite got over. I don't know if it's because of sort of disbelief or for not wanting to 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 learn new things, or because from a, from a dental point of view, you do you qualify as a dentist. You've been studying for five years. A lot of people don't want to study anymore. <laughs> um, so. I was lucky in the fact that I was somewhere where it was readily available. I didn't have to fly to another country to learn about it because I was based in Australia for five years. Um, and if I think back, if I, if I did or if I was going to have to fly from England to America, say once a month or however long I was doing those courses for, would I have done it? I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Um, lucky I was, I was sort of right there with the information while I was but um yeah it's it is one of those things there are a few of us there's not many well let's let's hope this podcast gets uh gets some of the information out and um you know ho hopefully helps helps patients because I just think something yeah. as I said something like that which really works with the body and not against it and actually yeah. works in line with and and um, also triggers your own innate healing ability is something that surely we should all be striving for because yeah. it's effective, it's safe, and it's cheap. I mean, you know, the NHS has got enough financial burdens that, that uh, you know, something like this could really help lift. That's another thing, actually, um, just before we move on. Um, in other countries, I do know that it is available on their... Um, on health insurance and on um, national as well. Mm -hmm. So in the US, for example, they do sort of bill these services under the national health insurance type system that they have, as well as private do uh, recognize this. But again, in England, it's not quite there yet. Okay, so your services, for example, are not available at all over the NHS or something, you know, that There's kind of There's no sort of known um, category for which it fits under mm -hmm. on the NHS. Um, and even with the sleep disorders, they've started introducing uh, dental appliances for sleep disorders on the NHS. 
but not at every hospital. And in some hospitals, the only option you will get is the CPAP machine, which there's only a 40% compliance with. So if you aren't breathing and you can't cope with the CPAP machine, then they don't, in every, in every hospital, there won't be another option, which is a shame. Um, I did have a few meetings when I first moved back with a few hospitals and they, didn't, they, they don't have the resources to provide any more care in that respect. So, yeah. And, and how is the, the concept actually viewed? I mean, you know, it's, we, we know that, I know from my own experience, um, science and medicine sometimes is a bit of a slow-moving beast. Um, how, how ready are they actually to accept this as, as, a, as a plausible thing, you know, as, as something with good scientific evidence-based data? Yeah, so um, a lot of, so I'm one of, I think it's 55 centres now. Um, like I said, the rest of them are uh, based in the US mostly. Um, but the founder of the TMJ and Sleep Therapy Centres, um, his name's Dr. Almas, and he's based in San Diego. So what we all do is we all work in the exact same way and we use the same protocols. So what he's been doing for the last 20 years now um, is... As a centre adds on to the group, um, every now and again he'll ask us for our clinical data um, and he'll put together papers. So there are a lot of papers out there um, on what we do and how it helps um, and also tested testimonials from patients as well, um, how it's helped them, how it's changed their lives. Um, all of those types of resources are available. Um, a lot of it is on the TMJ and Sleep International website, actually, if you want links to things. Yes, I'll put, I'll put all the relevant links at the bottom of the podcast notes. Yeah. 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 So, um, but yeah, he's been going for, it's more than 20 years now. So, yeah, it's only a matter of time, I think, before it, <laughs> before it gets round to the other side of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's let's hope quicker rather than slower because it's uh, it seems like it's something that people could really really make a lot of use of. And uh, yeah. we spoke at the very beginning about you know um, when would be the optimal time. What what kind of signs can can patients or clients look for um, as first of all for themselves as adults but also parents with their children so that they can actually kind of get in there quickly if, yeah. if it looks like there might be an issue. Okay, so for adults, um, you're looking at the headaches, neck aches, back aches, jaw aches. Um, on the other side of it, you're looking at trouble sleeping, uh, clenching your jaw, uh, grinding your teeth. Um, and dentists will actually see signs of this in the clinic, but they'll mention it to you generally as a patient and provide you with a night guard but it won't be um, common knowledge to, that that actually might be a sign for a sleep disorder or, or anything further from there. So that's where I think the disconnect is between those two, um, those two things. Um, the other thing, so you've got, you'll have a lot of structural type symptoms as an adult, and then you'll have a lot of sleep symptoms as well as an adult if you have combined issues. Um, for a child, it's slightly different. So for a child, you'd be looking at um, uh, bedwetting, um, ADHD-type behaviour, 
um, not being able to sort of calm down and go to sleep at a reasonable hour, even after lots of training, um, crowded jaws or small jaws. You might, they might even sleep with their mouths open, so there might be a bit of saliva on the pillow in the morning. Um, and then just visibly witnessing, for both adults and children, visibly witnessing struggle to breathe. Um, there's lots of videos on that online. I've seen a lot of that. Um, you mean breathing in, in, in waking hours or, or in, just in sleep? Um, mostly in sleep, but adults, again, and children. You, you know, when um, you can feel quite breathless when you're walking upstairs, that sort of thing as well. Um, everyone does. You put enough stairs in front of you, but <laughs> I mean like a single flight or, a, or something like that. Yeah, because, I mean, ordinarily you would just straight, well, I mean, obviously fitness is a, is the first thing you'd think of, but then you yeah. would think of things like heart insufficiency as, as being an issue. Yeah. I would never associate being breathless going up a staircase with, with a sleep disorder. I think that's yeah. brilliant that you've, you know, made me aware of that. Thank you. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, great. No, I think that's super interesting. Wonderful. So we've gone through um, a lot of those things. I always like to, um, if possible, give give people a couple of things and tips that they can actually take away. Um, you've given a, us a huge amount of information about what to look for and then what to do about it. But are there any, any things that a person can do for themselves if they think that they might be experiencing some of these issues so that they can actually help themselves? Or is it something that really is exclusively in the hands of a professional? So there are really simple things that you can do at home as well. So say if um, if you have trouble getting to sleep, there's really simple things, and a lot of listeners probably have heard of them already, but um, you don't want to be looking at bright screens right before you go to sleep. You don't want your brain to be active. You don't want to be reading anything, which a lot of people will argue that actually puts me to sleep. But the ideal would be to not have your brain active, not be thinking about anything or looking at anything. The room should be as dark as possible. Lock out blinds or curtains are the best. You should have a bit of air coming in as well. So try and leave a window open, some, some form of ventilation. You want your, um, and then more for your jaw, you want your uh, spine to be in a direct alignment with your head. You don't want your pillow to be propping you up too high or too low. You want to have consistency. Um, if possible, you want to be on your sides more than on your back because when you're asleep, all your muscles relax and your jaw retreats further backwards, which could mean a closure of the airway and you could end up grinding your teeth at that point and doing damage to the joint. Um, yeah, there's quite a lot of <laughs> quite a lot of things to, to think about if you haven't already. Um, if you do get up to go to the toilet at night, that's another sign that there might be something happening. Because um, ideally, the uh, hormones that are secreted they should they should be allowing you to concentrate your urine during your sleep, um, and that will happen while you're in deep sleep. If you don't get to deep sleep, you might have an inkling then to wake up. I don't mean if you've had a large glass of water, which would be the reason. I mean, if you've just gone to bed, but you still, without without doubt, have to wake up every single night to go to the toilet. That's not an actual normal thing. So that's something that might need looking into. Um, if you do wake up during the night and you do move around, try not to switch any lights on. 
is one of the main things. If you do have bright lights in your bathroom, just don't even don't even put them on. Right. Right, that makes a whole lot of sense, yeah. What about other things? I mean, we, we know these days that a healthy lifestyle is usually leads to being healthy. So what does um, changing diet and exercise and uh, stress management, well, we spoke a little bit about stress management already, but perhaps more diet and exercise, do, do they play a significant role? And if so, what sort of exercise, what sort of diet? Yeah. So diet and exercise uh, definitely uh, make a difference. Uh, are a lot of different things out there as, um, as to what you can try. Uh, we do also work with a couple of uh, nutritionists that we need. We do find that a lot of our patients are already aware of all of this because they've been around the houses. <laughs> but um, where we do have to give them advice, we advise them to try and stay off anything inflammatory and we give out a def deflammation diet guide. So that will generally be staying away from anything uh, that will break down to sugar and cause inflammation. So that would be your, your carbs. You don't want them too late in the evening. Coffees and teas, if you're going to have them, you don't want them again too late at night. Um, with the inflammation and the foods that cause it, unfortunately, the first point of inflammation is in the soft tissues of your nasal cavity, of your nasal passage. So if you do have something that's inflammatory and then you go to bed, your nose swells and you're starting the same cycle over again. So we try and get them to stay on that type of diet and also rec recommending supplements as well. A lot of those multivitamins that are out on the market, they uh, go straight in and go straight out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's no sort of retention in there. So... Um, if we're recommending taking supplements, we usually say if you can make sure, say if you're taking a magnesium, you take a magnesium citrate. Citrates tend to stay in your body for longer and actually work, um, whereas a lot of the combined ones, they do just go in and out when they haven't actually stayed in your system or done much. So, yeah, things like that. Um, I would imagine magnesium's a really good one, isn't it? Because, I mean, that's that's the, the, the relaxation mineral, you know, all the yeah. way, isn't it? Yeah, the, um, there's a big stereotype, actually. You have to be fat, overweight, um, over 50, and male to have sleep apnea. You don't. <laughs> um Children can have sleep apnea. We've uh, had a three-year-old with sleep apnea before. Um, and you are able to get to them and do things really early to start developing their, uh, their faces and their arches and their, their jaws and allow the airway to reach its genetic potential fully. Um, but a lot of people argue that you have to wait until they've become an adult to see if they grow out of it. But if they haven't had enough oxygen up until that point, they haven't really had a chance to grow fully. And once they're an adult or reached adult age, there's not much growing that can happen. So, Right. Um, I've been hearing an awful lot. I think it's really quite a thing in the in the states. I'm not sure if it's quite a thing in the U in the UK at all. Um, to do mouse taping to make people force people to breathe through the nose. And um, what, what's your opinion on that? 
kind of yeah, um, slightly scary, I have to say, the idea of it, but I guess you get used uh, to it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the main uh, techniques is, is the buteco technique for retraining mm -hmm. breathing. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't actually include that, but yeah, I'm a buteco practitioner as well. Mm -hmm. So the breathing retraining, um, it generally goes along the idea that if you have a uh, a lot of CO2, it will create an oxygen debt and you will then intake more oxygen um, and every breath that you take from there on will be a deeper, more efficient breath. So the idea of retraining the breathing is to make sure that you've got enough oxygen, oxygen circulating around your system. And ideally those exercises are done before you go to bed so it, so it continues throughout the night. The taping, um, not for everyone, and never ever tape it all the way across your mouth, that's really dangerous. <laughs> um, so with the taping, it's generally from one, one part of your top lip down, um, and that is to encourage a lip seal. You don't want to be doing that in anyone who's severely nasally congested because then they literally have nowhere to breathe from. Um, it's designed to encourage uh, nasal breathing, which is full functional breathing, um, in a case where they have the ability to do that. If someone's got a severely deviated septum and their sinuses are all congested and then you go and take their mouth as well, really not a good idea. No, 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 <laughs> but, I see that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, a lot of people will read that online as well, which is really scary, so don't, yeah, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> unless you've had yourself checked and some imaging done to see if you can actually do that. Okay, yeah, that's very sound advice. Yeah. Well, Karina, thanks very, very much. Oh, it's a super, super informative. Is there anything that um, that you would like to add to what we've said? Oh, okay, let's put it this way. I, I, it's a question I like to ask, which is, if there was one thing that you would wish that people would do to help themselves, what would that be? Oh, that's a really tough one. <laughs> Um, oh. I would say if they, if, if you feel anything or if you're not sure if something's normal, check it out. Don't just ignore it and leave it. I think that's, that would be the main thing because it could get up to a point where all of a sudden you're sort of non-functional and you don't know why. Right. Very good yeah. advice. And then I'm going to finish up with our with my favourite three little questions, which we always ask all of our guests, mm -hmm. because uh, we we talk here a lot about mind, body, spirit, and obviously you know you're you're much a believer in in treating people holistically as well. So I like to think of this in terms of um, health, happiness, and serenity. So first of all, how would how do you define health? What does that word actually mean to you personally? Personally, it's the ability to to function. If if you can't function and you can't breathe, you you well, you don't exist really. <laughs> so health to me is that. Wonderful. Yeah. And what about happiness? Where does Karina find happiness? What sort of things do you do to make you happy? Um, I travel quite a lot amongst all of this. <laughs> so that is what I love doing at the moment. I've almost um, completed the, um, the Seven Wonders somehow in between. <laughs> and I, I did get asked this. I was like, don't you want to spend time in these places? And 
I don't have the time, so I literally stop for a day. <laughs> and I can, I can say I've seen something and I've been there. And that, that's, yeah, I get a real enjoyment out of that. Um, the issue, the only issue I have with it is obviously flying um, causes inflammation. And then I sort of go around in the same circle as well. So I'm there with, with everyone else. <laughs> right. And I guess the jet lag's not so great for your sleep cycles either, is it? <laughs> no, no. So, yeah, I understand where all of those issues come from. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Which actually, um, um, before I go on to my last question about serenity, just to just to interject, because that just made me think of something. Um, do you recommend at all that people take things like melatonin um, to get over jet lag? Melatonin. Um, if you are going to take anything, there's a hell of a lot of different drugs out there. Melatonin would be the sort of least invasive one. Um, it does retrain your sleep cycles. So if you did um, take a melatonin tablet before you or before you were trying to go to sleep and you've reached a new area, um, it isn't something that I'd recommend daily by by any means. But if you were somewhere where you had to get onto a new timetable, you didn't want to have to suffer with jet lag and you did have a busy day the next day, you had to get on there and be alert you do need a good night's sleep for that. Um, there are other medications that dumb down your whole nervous system and make you feel okay for a couple of hours, like a placebo effect more. Um, those ones I would stay away from. And if you were going to take anything, melatonin would be the one. Yeah. Great. Which segues very nicely then into our last question, which is serenity. Um, I, think, I think shutting down the noise and getting away from the stresses of life and finding a little bit of serenity is absolutely crucial to good health. So how do you find serenity? How do you get to that quiet place inside? Um, I love yoga. <laughs> um, that really helps. Oh, and with breathing as well, actually. So if, if you are someone that suffers with um, not being able to breathe and we were talking about breathing exercises before, yoga is a great one. Um, so with breathing while you move um, and the feeling that you get after. And I even love that. I never used to be able to do that, actually. The, the last part of it where you're meditating for a minute or a couple of five minutes or so. Um, now I've actually learned how to switch off. And that's something that not many people know how to do. I didn't realize how many people it was until I started doing it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I would definitely recommend that as a way, not only for your body, but for your mind as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Karina. I think you've given us a huge amount of information. You've absolutely opened my eyes to a whole subject that I didn't even know existed. So I hope the same is true for our listeners. And um, we'll put all the links to, to your um, contact details and websites and so and places where people can find out more information. Because I think that this is a really, really important area of medicine, which um, hopefully we'll stop overlooking and start exploring because I think it, it really is very fundamental. Good night's sleep and uh, is really crucial to us all. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I was hoping to get the awareness out there. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, please keep doing what you're doing and uh, very much appreciate your, your great work. Really, really great. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
So, listeners, um, that was this week's episode of London Heal. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. I thought that was absolutely brilliant and very enlightening and um, hope that in the future you can all also enjoy a much better night's sleep. Of course, please uh, rate and review us and subscribe if you think this information was of interest to you because the more subscriptions and ratings that we get, the easier it is for me to get this information out to more and more people that really, really need it. Um, we now have a Facebook presence, so please check us out at, at London Heal, also on Twitter and Instagram. And stay tuned for more of the same next week. Hope you enjoyed it and wishing you, as always, health, happiness and serenity. <laughs>